Well, if you're coming here today and you're uh, new and uh, you haven't been following along, that's okay. Um, At first blush, you may think Acts chapter 8 would have uh, nothing for you. And that's an interesting thing to think anyway, because really we're not here for ourselves. We're here to worship the Lord, and yet the Lord does do a mighty work in His people. And so even as we study His Word, we pray that it would glorify the Father. And yet, again, He takes the Word of God and implants it in people and saves them. And then, after He saves them, He takes the child of God by the Word of God and makes us more and more Christ-like. And we're today going to be introduced for the second time this figure named Saul. If you recall, when we closed out last week, we found uh, or studied about the first martyr. He was killed for his faith. And you say to yourself, wow, what a happy message. But if you review and look at what Stephen was thinking and feeling and doing, he was happy. He was joyful. He was forgiving. He was as Christ-like as you could be by the power of the Holy Spirit as stones were being pummeled into the side of his head and killed. He was looking up to heaven. He was calling out to the Father. And he was saying things like, don't hold this against these people who are doing this against me. Does it sound familiar? Well, it should because it was the same Christ-like attitude that our Lord and Savior displayed, showed, gave us at the cross. That was Stephen. And we have said, as we've been studying this book, that generally, now this is a general statement, generally, the first half of the book of Acts is God uh, sharing and ministering through His people in and around Jerusalem, generally. And then it's the tale, it's the story of how the gospel gets out of Jerusalem to the area of Judea and then to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And really, that's the book of Acts, sure, but the book of Acts, in a sense, is still going on. And you're a testament to that. Because as you sit here, the Lord still, by the Holy Spirit, working things out, uh, asking us to go and to share and to love and to minister and to uh, stoop down and to uh, uh, pay attention to and to hear and to talk with and to pray for people and to serve them as Jesus served. And praise the Lord, we don't have to do it in our own strength. If we did, we'd run out of steam. You might run out of steam in a year or two weeks or a month or six months in your own strength. I don't know. But the story of the book of Acts is that these folks were doing it as they were filled with the Holy Spirit. He gives us power and resource and strength to live this life. And he certainly did it in the early church. And I fear sometimes we look at the early church and go, well, come on, you know, that was the early church. But the thing is, is that The Holy Spirit who lived in them is the same Holy Spirit who resides in us. So let's go.
<laughs> Let's give people Jesus. But as we saw in the last couple chapters, we're now getting the baton. The baton has been this. Jesus has passed a baton to 12 men. And then these 12 men began to preach. And we remember in the city of Jerusalem, people became added to the church. And the story then goes outside of the 12 and has been passed to a guy named Stephen. And now the baton is sort of being passed in the story to a guy named Philip. Now, who were Stephen and Philip? They were two of these several deacons who were asked when a problem arose within the early church to relieve the apostles of the serving ministry, not because they were above it, not because they were more special or pious or anything like that. In fact, the apostles were and uh, willing to go ahead and do it, but they were to be devoted to prayer and the word. Remember this? And so this problem comes up that there's this division within the church between the Hellenistic widows and the Orthodox Jewish widows who are all in the body of Christ, but that during the food distribution, maybe the Hellenist ladies are not being taken care of or fed properly. And so instead of making this grand division and exiting the church and people getting angry and mad under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the apostles raise up seven deacons and two of them are Stephen and Philip. Now that's really important because Stephen and Philip said, oh, you want me to serve? Oh, praise the Lord. I'm going to just lay my down my life in serving. I'll serve. We'll, we'll, we'll bring out the fa uh, uh, sacks of food. We'll put the utensils. I'm not above, I could, I imagine Stephen and Philip saying, we're not above serving, picking up the food, cleaning off the trays, taking the trash out. We're not above that. And the Bible shows Stephen the next time the next time we see him, after he's uh, a waiter, been picked to be a waiter, we see him in front of the Supreme Court of Israel. And we said, isn't that a principle? If you would be faithful in the little things, Jesus said, if you'll just be faithful there, then he'll enlarge the things that he has for you. And enlarge means different things. You may never be a Billy Graham. Or a hundred thousand seat evangelist, or you know, how hundred thousand person evangelist. Maybe that's not how God will enlarge it, but maybe He'll enlarge it in your prayer ministry. In the room that nobody checks on Sunday, just praying and praying for more people, and maybe He'll do that. I don't know what it is, but there is this principle. And now we get to a guy named Philip. And before we do that, we have sort of a little bridge here. Stephen just has been martyred. And as he was martyred, we're introduced to a guy named Saul. Somehow, some way, this guy named Saul is watching as the people who brought the charges, that's who I think would have been throwing the first stones. By the way, they ain't stones like this, folks. These are stones to kill. And Saul there is consenting 
to the stoning of Stephen. He's watching. The people take off their cloaks, hand them to Saul, lay them at his feet, and it says that Saul is consenting. That's why many people think, and by the way, that's in chapter 8, verse 1, now Saul was consenting to his death. Whose death? Stephen's. Remember, the numbers here aren't inerrant. I mean, these are just man-made chapters. They probably... Anyway, they run on, you understand? This is just for our purposes, so we can find things. Anyway, Saul was consenting to his death. And based on that, listen, based on that scripture and some others, we can learn a lot about who Saul was. And I think it's important that we do it now. He was consenting to his death. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, verse 2, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They stayed back. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So what was I saying? Based on verse 1 of chapter 8, many people, people believe that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. Now let me just let that sink in there for a minute. Generally, and I'm a lawyer, I don't see the judges out on the streets inflicting the penalty, executing the penalty. You get what I'm saying? The judge puts the gavel down, announces the penalty, and then goes to lunch. But the police or the detectives take people out of the court, and they're the ones that sort of execute the judgment in a sense. I mean, the authority comes from the judge. Here you got a guy who possibly was on the ruling council of Israel. He's out now in the field murdering people, consenting to the murder. And I want you to see something. As we've been going through the books of Acts, this council started by warning the apostles. Remember, they kind of held them overnight, said, hey guys, no more teaching about Jesus, okay? No more. What did these guys do? Ran out to the prayer meeting and said, Lord, give us more boldness and joy and, and the ability to go places and share the gospel no matter where it is, Lord. We'll never stop. The, we would have been like this. Lord, oh, that night last night was so bad. I don't ever want to do that again. And Lord, I know you just must not care for me because you made me stay overnight in the council chambers. These guys were like, send me again. Please, Lord, it's a privilege. You've given us a directive to share the gospel to every creature in all places and everywhere. But here, what my point is, this man Saul is consenting to the death of Stephen. Can you hardly believe it? And you could go and read several places in the Bible about this man. He was from a place called Tarshish in Cilicia. And if you look at the Mediterranean Sea, it's up at the top, like in the bottom of Asia Minor. And he lived up there. And in 2 Corinthians, he calls himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews. We know that he studied with this famous rabbi named Gamaliel. 
And Gamaliel, in his extra-biblical writings, said, I couldn't keep Paul in books. I'd bring him books, he'd devour them. I'd bring him more books, devour. He was a studier. He was a person who was zealous for the law uh, of, of, the, of Judaism or the law or, you know, the Old Testament law. And even in Acts 23, it says that he's a son of a Pharisee, which is a religious sect that was on the Jewish council. And that council was the orthodox, very orthodox keeper of the first five books of the law and the prophets and the poetry. So you know all this, and he even said in Philippians, a book that he wrote or an epistle he wrote, that he was blameless before the law. Now, I don't think he was saying he was sinless, but he was trying to tell us that of all the people, I was right up there, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, zealous for the law, wanting to keep it, and did so. But his zeal, his zealousness, poured forth in persecution, didn't it? And we talked about this, and if you're tuning me out now, okay, I get it, don't now for about the next 10 seconds. Religion, external adherence to rules and regulations without the inward reality of Christ in your life leads to this type of thing. This stuff in which we're bitter and angry when somebody upsets our religious apple cart. This thing where if you don't worship this way or I don't worship that or whatever, we get to this place where we become mean and bitter and hateful to the point where these religious dudes, and there was nobody more religious than them, externally, there was nobody more externally religious than them. Remember, time out, Jesus said, they're whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they looked amazingly beautiful. They'd been painted, decorated. They looked amazing, but inside they were tombs. They were dead and rotting. And you see it pouring forth right here from the Hebrew of the Hebrews, the Pharisee, the one who was blameless in the law. By the way, just another thing, we don't exactly know how, but later in um, Acts, at the end of the book of Acts, we know somehow, some way, he was also a Roman citizen, which kept him at some point from receiving some punishment. So a very interesting fellow who's going to play, obviously, a big part of writing the Bible. You get that. He wrote most of the New Testament. We're going to see the story now over the next two days, or two days. I'm going to keep you in here for two days. Over the next two weeks, over the next two weeks, he was a Roman citizen. He's positioned perfectly. One who knew the law. One who lived in and around Jerusalem. One who had access to both the Jewish people and the Gentile world. He's an amazing mind, and yet... All of the power and prestige and everything in chapter 9, which I tried to go to earlier, the Lord appears to him and basically sweeps that rug out from underneath his life 
and his whole life has changed. That's this guy. But he started out like this. He wanted to kill all of the Christians. He took it upon himself, it seems, in killing the Christians. Now, watch what happens. He consents to his death. They go from a warning to a flogging later. They go to martyrdom in Stephen. And now, look, they're going to persecution. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church. Now, we're going to ask my crack staff back here to put up our verse if we can. You might be tempted to think, well, you're here today, maybe, and you're saying persecution. Okay, persecution happened in the early church. No big deal. How in the world would this ever have any application to me? Well, I suspect in some time, if you're a born-again believer, you've prayed this prayer. Lord, help me to be more godly. So let's read together. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will not may, not might, will suffer persecution. Why are you so surprised about what's happening now? Why? Read the verse. Now let me remind you who wrote this verse. A guy named Paul, who used to be named Saul. In other words, God took a man who used to be the persecutor, and he became the persecuted. Paul. He was writing to his understudy, his son in the faith, and he said, hey, Timothy. What a great name, by the way. But Timothy... Don't be surprised. When you're building the church that you're going to pastor and work in and sweat and toil with, there's going to be a day when you're going to be tempted. You're going to be walking, you know, in the wherever you're walking, and you're going to be talking with people in the fellowship, and you're just going to feel totally persecuted. And when you feel that way, Paul's saying, you're right where you're supposed to be. Now listen, the Bible tells us as much as it's up to us, you get it? As much as it's up to us, live in peace with all men. And yet there's some things that we, just like the early church, can't negotiate. There's no way we can go back on some of the things, or many of the things, or most of the things, don't quibble with my word, it's probably just lack of sleep, but that the world does and sees in us, and comes to us, and provokes us, and attacks us. Because the Bible tells us that we would be persecuted. So what, what's persecution? Well, in their time, it was to disagree with what they were doing and to actually kill them. Now, I don't know many people in America that that happens to, but it certainly happens around the world. There's persecution around the world, but here it's different stuff. You get canceled. Or maybe you get fired. Or maybe, I don't know, you get taken out of a position that you wanted to be in a position with. Or maybe someone puts you on blast on social media. I don't know. But here, the Bible tells us that we will be persecuted. So what I'm trying to tell us is this has great application to what we're thinking about and seeing as we move along post-COVID. I mean, come on. Whatever your take was on COVID, did you ever think you'd ever see anything like COVID in the United States? No, no way. And it happened within two weeks. And you're like, what is going on here? In fact, we were supposed to go to 
Israel, the week of the world shut down. And I remember one of the attendees texting or emailing me about a day and a half before we're ready to leave and said, are we still going to Israel? And I'm like, of course we're going to Israel. Why wouldn't we go to Israel? Boy, am I smart, right? In other words, we'll be persecuted. And a great persecution here arose against the church, which was, at, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. And I think you and I need to really remember what that word scattered means. And think about it. Because if you realize what scattered means in this context, I think it'll change how you look at this chapter. See, when you read it at first, you think scattered like cockroaches scatter. The light comes on or the persecution is turned up. Boom. And they scatter and they go and hide. That's not what this word means. This word means appropriately scattered to grow. Positionally or placed in particular in places so that there will be growth. That's scattered. Not scattered like cockroaches. Scattered like seeds. That's what this is. Boy, that makes a big difference when you're reviewing this chapter. Here's why. Because we cower from persecution here a lot of the time in America. When the church was persecuted, they recognized and knew that God in his sovereignty was scattering the church. And when he scattered them via persecution, listen, they were being placed exactly where God wanted them. It's always this way as you go through the Gospels. When you read the Gospels and you think, oh, you get to the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the passion story, you're like, oh, Jesus, don't say that. You know, at first you're like, oh, did he get caught off guard here? No, 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 no. They thought they were putting Jesus on trial. Jesus was actually putting them on trial. Here, they're uh, beginning, with, or they're uh, uh, applying and turning up the heat in persecution. And God's like, yeah, I know. It's perfect. It's exactly what I need to put the people, or that, exactly what I'm doing to put the people where I want them to be, scattered. Isn't that freeing? It could free you up. You know how it can free you up? Come on, folks, don't complain when the Lord puts you in a job on Monday morning at 8 o'clock. You put it on Facebook, I hate Mondays. Ooh, you hate Mondays? Well, the Lord has you there for a purpose. The Lord has me there for a purpose. I think Christians should get that out of their vernacular or their vocabulary. Don't complain about where the Lord has put you. Now, is there anything wrong with, let's say you hate your job or you don't like your job or whatever? You, you, get a resume together, put it out there, and if the Lord wants to move you on, he'll move you on. But be where you're planted because you have been scattered there on purpose. And I always say this, and I know if you're a regular here, you get sick of me saying this, but I can't see many people in here as I look out here. There is in school, okay, the school folks. Go to the same place every Monday morning. You all go somewhere different generally, which means you can't come where I come, and I can't go where you go. You're scattered. The Lord's put you there for a purpose. So while you're there, bloom in the Holy Spirit. And if the Lord wants to move you on, okay, praise the Lord. Let him move you on. But until that time, he's got a job for you. Scattered. We're in two verses. And I'm trying to get through the whole thing here. 
we might be here two days. So here he is, and they were all scattered, but watch, this, it's just so amazing how the Bible is written by the Holy Spirit. Where did the Lord scatter them? Throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. In other words, what the writer is telling you by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is, you know the plan that Jesus set out with? Go and uh, share the gospel where? In Jerusalem, that's already been happening. And then go to Judea and Samaria, and then to the utter ends of the earth, or the outermost parts of the earth. Well, it's happening. And this writer is trying to tell you, or is telling you, God has your life right where he wants you, and he's working out his plans and purposes, and he's not surprised. You can go turn on MSNBC tonight. You can go turn on Fox News tonight. And you can get mad and angry, upset if you want. But the Lord is on the throne, and he knows what he's doing. So he scatters them to the exact places that he needs them to be scattered. The 12 apostles stay back, and a lot of people debate why that is. Well, there was still a lot of things going on uh, and persecution going on even in Jerusalem. But I can tell you what was going on back in Jerusalem if you want to know. And I'm not smart. I can just read. And here's what I read back in Acts 2.42. Here's what I think was happening back in Jerusalem. And they were continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And as they did this, the Lord, it says uh, at the end of this, uh, uh, in verse 47 or 48, whatever, 47, added to the church daily, those who were being saved. And how did he add to the church daily? He was sending people out still in Jerusalem. <laughs> That's what the apostles were doing. Some people read that and go, why didn't the apostles go? Well, they were fellowshipping and sh still sharing uh, back in Jerusalem, most likely. Okay, now keep going with me. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. He made havoc of the church. Now, let me tell you what that word means. It's like a wounded animal. You ever seen, well, I better not say that because that'll date me, an old movie. A wounded animal movie. Anyway, you ever seen a wounded animal or something in the movies when they get shot or an arrow goes through them, they're wounded, and they just go on a rampage? You ever seen that? Or you know about it? That's what that word means in the Greek. God bless you. Paul said he was a wounded animal or excuse me, uh, the writer here said that Paul was a, like a wounded animal, and instead of it putting him down and dying, it made him wild and going out and wreaking havoc on the church, entering every house and dragging off men and committing them uh, uh, to prison. I mean, he was doing a number on the church. You get it? I, I want you to see something, though. Because after Acts 9, you're going to see, I said, Jan, this morning as we're driving here, what's the difference between Saul and Paul? And she just said, Jesus, man. He had an encounter with Jesus. And she said, and I think she's right, this is what people look like when they surrender their life to Jesus. It's radical. It's different. You don't stay in your sins. You move on towards Christ's likeness under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When you see Jesus and recognize Him for who He is, you change. But 
in his change, in his transformation, after his sins were forgiven, I want you to know something. Paul, Saul, Paul never forgot what he did in a healthy way. You know, some people can be paralyzed by their past. That wasn't Paul. Obviously wasn't. He was telling Timothy, it's coming your way and we need to deal with it. But Paul always had a healthy remembrance of what he was like prior to Christ. Listen, in Acts 22 to the Jerusalem mob, he talks about when the blood of the martyr Stephen was shed, I was standing by and consenting unto his death and kept the coats of those people who killed him. Uh, he talks about it earlier in Acts 22, in, uh, in Acts 22, 4. And he also in Acts 26 told King Agrippa, Many of the saints I put in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. This is who this guy was and was exceedingly mad against them. I persecuted them even into strange cities. To the Corinthians, here's what I'm trying to tell you. He wrote, I'm the least of the apostles. I shouldn't even be called an apostle, he says, because I persecuted the church of the God. To the Galatians, he wrote, you've heard of my former life in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church, listen, and wasted it. That's what he says. How about this? To the Philippians, he says, concerning zeal. No one knows more than me how zealousness can really be directed in the wrong way because I persecuted the church through my zealousness. He, this period of Paul's life had deep impact on him and God used it for God's glory. Do you get it? But it never left him. He was aware of it. He knew what he could be or was. He knew what he was without Jesus Christ in his life. You understand? Yes, he'd been saved unto the new kingdom. Yes, he'd been saved by grace, and he was part of a royal priesthood, a chosen generation. But he never remember, forgot where he came from. And I think that's important in a good way. Don't dwell on it, no. Move forward, forget what's behind, move on to the upward call, the prize in Christ Jesus, of course, do all of that. But Paul didn't forget. And so, that's who he is. And then, that's just sort of the bridge to introduce us because in chapter 9, you're going to hear more from him and the gospel's going to go out to the Gentile world. But in the meantime, we get to waiter. Hey, can I help you? Waiter number two. And I don't mean to pick on waiters. I always tell this story. Jan supported us when I lived in Hawaii, when we lived in Hawaii, by being a waitress at three different places. So I love waiters. But here you have this waiter a waiter. And apparently he's been faithful in the little things, little things. And now God is going to use him in a different way. Look, therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. If you were writing a legal brief, you'd make that sentence and then you'd go, see, exhibit Philip. See, more people than Philip were doing this. But he was giving the exhibit, the example, Philip. So 
they're scattered everywhere. They're positionally placed by God. They're, what are they doing? What are they doing there? They're preaching the word. They're proclaiming the word. And I ask you, are you proclaiming the word at your work, at your place, at your extracurriculars? Are you doing it? Are you inviting people? Are you sharing with them? Are you loving? Are you listening to them? Are you, are you going to sit with sinners and tax collectors like Jesus did? If not, why not? Ask the Lord to fill you afresh with his Holy Spirit so that he would scatter you to the right place. And he has put you in the right place. So now ask him for a filling of the Holy Spirit so that you'll gently be bold in your workplace. And how can you be bold in your workplace? First, do good work. Work is unto the Lord. Be the best worker at your work. And when there are break times... When there are times at lunch, when there are times when you're walking to your car or from your car, when all of that's happening, not on work time because you're a worker, then you're speaking of the Lord, talking of the Lord, singing praise songs. And when somebody at your work asks you, how can you be so filled and full of joy? You ask them this question, you do it every time so you won't get in trouble. Do you really want to know? Now you put the ball in their court. They say, yeah, I want to know. Sometimes maybe even say it twice because they don't know what's coming. Do you really want to know? And when they say yes, you give them Jesus, just like these people were doing. So Philip's exhibit A, and he goes down to the city of Samaria, which is really funny going down because if you look on a map, he was actually going up. In the bottom of Israel was a section called Judea. Oh, look at us. We are so great. I see that light go on and I'm like, hey, did they put something up back there? So in the bottom there is uh, uh, Judea. You see the region. In the middle is Samaria. In the top is Galilee. And uh, you know the story of uh, the woman at the well. It happened in Samaria. Let me give you a little background about Samaria. And I love the gospel this way. There is no room for prejudice in the Christian body. Bless you. I don't care if you make a ton of money or make no money. I don't care if you have this color skin or that color skin. I don't care if you came from these people groups or this people group or that people group. We are all one in Christ. And this story sort of tells you that. Is that God, by the Holy Spirit, told this waiter. Waiter? Why didn't he tell the apostles? Why didn't he tell the pastor? He told a waiter to go to a place in Samaria. We don't exactly know which city. Some people believe it's that one called whatever it's called. And, uh, but we don't know exactly. But somewhere in the middle of Israel there, and he preached Christ to them. Now let me tell you a little bit about the Assyrians or the Samaritans. The Samaritans come from the Assyrians. And what happened was in 722 BC, about 800 years prior to the time of Jesus, the Assyrians came into the top of Israel, including that place called Samaria now, and took out most of the people back to uh, Assyria. But what they did was they left the poor and the destitute and um, a lot of the people who, according to the world, not to Christians, didn't measure up. And what happened was those Jewish people who were left there intermarried with the Assyrians. And so a lot of Orthodox Jewish people 
wouldn't associate with Samaritans. You get what I'm saying? So that when, isn't it beautiful? Isn't it just the greatest? The Lord says, okay, see exhibit A in Acts chapter 8 and says, one of the first places I want to tell you about is Samaria, where we, well, I shouldn't say we, where God wrecked all of those walls and dividing lines between people. And he went in there with Philip to the city of Samaria. Why? Because, G, uh, because God cares for all the people. And he goes there and he preaches Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip. Their hearts were prepared. Why? Because the Holy Spirit had gone before and cultivated the hearts of the people. God scattered his people into those cities via persecution. That's not a bad word to the Christian, folks. And he puts them there and they're prepared. And when Philip starts to preach... There's this thing that happens. People are trusting Christ and giving themselves unto the Lord as they hear and see the miracles. Now listen, we always say this. I love miracles. You love miracles. We love miracles. Let's make a kid song about that. But miracles aren't the things that say. They confirm the word of God. Don't get hung up on the miracles. We all love them. I want to see miracles. Do I believe in gifts of healing? Sure. Do we want uh, to be healed? Yes. But you know where to base your faith? The Word of God. So they go in there and Philip preaches the Word and confirms it through the signs and the wonders. And it says, For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. And I want you to see one more thing before we leave this section. See, when you read these Gospels, remember there's something at work here, and it happened all the way back in the book of Genesis. Something really cataclysmic happened. I mean, so cataclysmic. I know we color them with cute little green and red colors in Sunday school and we, it's cute and it's wonderful, but it isn't cute and it's not wonderful. Is that God, excuse me, people rebelled against God. And what happened is sin entered through one man and spread to us all. The worst disease of all, sin. And what Christ is telling us in the gospels and now we're seeing in the book of Acts is that he is coming and taking people one by one and putting them into back into his kingdom or into his kingdom. You see it? And that's what this is trying to tell you, just like the Gospels. We did one this morning in Mark chapter 2. Remember the paralytic, his, his friends, his, what great friends. You guys be great friends like this. They got a paralytic friend. And four friends take him over to the house where Jesus is doing uh, his preaching and his teaching and his healing. And they're like, you, you know, typical friends. I can't believe this. There's so many people in that house. What should we do? Then they go, oh, wait a minute. I know what we'll do. There's flat roofs in Palestine. I'm just throwing that in. They probably didn't say that. But they knew it. So they get up on the flat roof. It's thatched. And, and they dig in there and they lower their buddy down through the roof. And uh, it says in the gospel there in Mark chapter 2 that Jesus saw the faith of the friends, not the paralytic. Praise the Lord when we're faithless, he remains faithful. 
But anyway, so they see this, and this guy gets healed. But, but when he gets healed, Jesus says this. This is how he gets healed. Son, rise up and walk. No, he didn't say that. He said, your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine if you would have been the four friends? You'd have been like, wait a minute, time out. <laughs> what about his paralysis? Jesus was telling us something that he was bringing people into his kingdom, the kingdom of the son of his love, the Bible tells us. Oh, that's what these are things. And this is a continue, that's what this is about. And it's a continuation of the, what's happening when Jesus is announcing his Messiahship in the gospels through things like Mark 2 and his authority to forgive people of sins. And now they're filled up with the Holy Spirit and people are coming out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. What greater joy is that than anything in the world? And the whole city, the city is filled. The people in the city are filled with joy. It's really interesting as we go on, you'll have to remind me because I got all these thoughts up in my head, is that the filling of the Holy Spirit and salvation is closely associated with joy. It's all throughout the book of Acts. And that's fascinating to me because if you're looking at the circumstances of these people, you wouldn't exactly write joy across the uh, movie script. But here they are and they're joyful. Now listen, what happens, what happens immediately after Philip is doing his thing in this beautiful place called Samaria. Well, the enemy attacks. And he rises up, or he raises up someone. I mean, it's immediate. Boom. And here you go. There was a certain man called Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great. By the way, this guy was known People in Samaria knew him. He had a reputation. They thought he was great. To whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man has, uh, is the great power of God. Really? Just because you're well-known and you have a following, huh? You're from God. I'm not sure about that. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. This witchcraft, this incantations, whatever. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Wow, okay. So something's happened to this guy, and uh, he hears some of the teaching or uh, things that Philip is, is proclaiming, and uh, he appears to believe. Now watch this in verse 14. The apostles, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. Why Peter and John? I don't exactly know. Maybe what it was is they were gifted in doing what they were about ready to do. They were praying and working on and thinking about and moving in, helping to lay hands on people so that they would receive a filling of the Holy Spirit. 
And maybe Philip just thought, well, I'm pretty good at evangelism, or at least the Lord is, maybe he didn't say that, but maybe he said the Lord has called me to evangelism. Let's call out Peter and John to come up to Samaria and help me with this. Maybe that. I don't know. Maybe Peter and John just wanted to confirm all the good things that were happening at the church as it was growing in Samaria. But nevertheless, when they had come down, Peter and John prayed for them. And I want you to see what they had prayed, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now here at Calvary, here's what we think. Just lay it out on the table for you. These people were already saved. They had received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in which every believer Uh, It happens at every conversion, as that the uh, Holy Spirit comes to indwell in their lives. But we believe there can be, at the time of salvation, or even subsequent to that, a filling of the Holy Spirit for ministry and operate in ministry, a fresh filling. And as one pastor, or at least several pastors I've heard say this, Uh, What's the difference between the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit and the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit? Well, that's easy. The indwelling uh, ministry is this, is that you have the Holy Spirit. And when you surrender your life to Christ, no doubt he comes to live in your life. Well, what's the filling of the Holy Spirit? It's not that you have the Holy Spirit then, it's that the Holy Spirit has you. And there's a big difference. And every time these people, you just keep an open mind there, every time these people went out to do ministry, even the ones who had already received the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit, they asked for fresh fillings over and over again. We'll see it. Well, here they come. For as yet, uh, he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that, uh uh-oh, uh-oh. So now you got this guy who's made a profession of faith, and when he sees the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He didn't get it. It wasn't coming to him. You can't buy and sell the Holy Spirit. Now, you're all in here chuckling and saying, yeah, that's interesting. I know that. Well, look at the state of modern Christianity, folks. Oh, my. It seems like we're more interested in how many likes we can have or how many records we can sell or how many books we can sell than in people getting saved. And am I against records? No, I'm not against records. I listen to them. Not anymore. I listen to Spotify. But uh, I listen to them. And am I against books? No, I'm not against books. I read a lot of books. But God help us if we're more interested in those things than we are the soul of one person who may not go to heaven. Hudson Taylor tells this story. Do you know Hudson Taylor? In the mid-1800s, he goes to China, and he's generally uh, you know, thought as the missionary who opened up China. And he'd been there and been learning the language, of course, before, and he, he finally got a convert, and uh, he could converse with him and all that. And uh, after a couple weeks of you know, just being in the Lord and being joyful... 
the, the convert comes to Hudson Taylor and says, hey, can I ask you a question? And, and uh, Hudson Taylor said, of course. Yes, of course. And uh, he said, how long have you known the gospel? And I don't know what Hudson Taylor said, 20 years or 25 years or whatever. And he said, why didn't you come sooner? My dad died without knowing Jesus. Hudson Taylor tells that story. God help us if we're more interested in buying and selling than we are in the hearts and souls of men and women, boys and girls. But this guy, you see what was actually going on in his heart. Give me this power. I'm attracted to power. I'm attracted to miracles. I'm attracted to signs. And I'll do anything. I'll do anything if I can lay on hands. I'll pay for it. I got money. I'll pay for it. That's what he's saying. But Peter said to him, your money perish with you. J.B. Phillips, gives a, uh, who's a commentary and a pastor, gives a uh, commentary on that. And he says, to heck with your money. But he doesn't use the word heck. That's what he's saying. Get that out of here. Your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You understand that the giving of the Holy Spirit is a gift. It's not something you conjure up. It's not something you roll around on the floor on and all of a sudden magically it appears. This is a gift from God. It always is a gift from God. He gives the Holy Spirit as He wills, not so that we could show ourselves, but that he could be built or his body could be built up and he could be glorified. You have neither part nor portion in this matter for your heart's not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore, or this uh, of this, your wickedness. This is wicked. uh, Peter says, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you for, I see that you're a poison by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me. That's always the way it is, folks. Pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. It's always the way it is. This morning in uh, Bible college, here's what we talked about. What's a a way in which uh, we're convicted? And Lewis Sperry Chafer gave three ways in which you're convicted. The Word of God, of course. Agree? The Word of God. Second is somebody who's a mature Christian or a believer comes to you and speaks into your life and says, you know, your life in this area is not matching up with what the scriptures say. You may want to think of repenting and moving away from that. Number two. Number three, a prompting of the Holy Spirit that lines up with the word of God. The problem is, just like here, many times if you go to a person and you say, you know, your life's not matching up here. Here's what we say as Americans. Who are you to tell me? What are you talking about? You got your own dirt, your own stuff. Instead of looking within and doing what Peter says, repenting and agreeing with God that what we're doing is sin. We always want to say, well, maybe pray, but why do I need to pray? You pray for me. I'm not doing anything wrong, right? In other words, When the Holy Spirit convicts us many times, here's what we want to do that's not real repentance. Ready for this? We want to avoid the consequences. That's not repentance. uh, Repentance, or excuse me, avoiding the consequences is just avoiding the consequence. 
Feeling sorry is just feeling sorry. Real repentance gets down on your knees and says, you know, friends, I appreciate you bringing that to me because you're 100% right. I've sinned against God and you, and I repent. And as many times as you want to bring that up to me, that's fine with me because you're right. I'm a sinner. But repentance that's not repentance is... uh okay, I'll tell you, I'm sorry, can you just forget it and we can just go on with how life was? That's not repentance. So was Simon saved or not? I don't know, but I know this. In James 2, it says that the devils believed. They even trembled at his presence, but they weren't saved. And I don't want any of us in the American church to miss heaven by this far. Yeah, we know you're God. We know you're the Messiah. We know you paid the penalty for your sins. And I'm going to go to church and I'll give some money and I might even work in the Sunday school room or something. But repentance? Ah. Changed life? Nah. So watch this. When they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Now, one more thing. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go forward the south along the road, which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Do we have that map, guys and gals? Do we have that map? Maybe. Uh, Anyway, oh, we do. And so, look. Oh, yeah, same map. (laughs) See where Jerusalem is? You always hear about the Gaza Strip? It's over there. It's against there, okay? And he would have taken this, uh, uh, this route down here. He went to Gaza. God was interested in the people in Gaza. You getting that? Now, two things about this and we'll close. And we'll pick it up next week. And this is fascinating to me. If you're Philip and you're a waiter, and now God's enlarged your ministry, and you go to Samaria, and it's going like gangbusters, man. I mean, you got a big screen. People can watch downstairs. The church is growing. I bought myself a $1,000 pair of Nikes. People are looking at me on TV, and they see me, and the ministry's growing, and it's amazing. Let's stay in Samaria and just ride this out. You'd be tempted to do that, wouldn't you? And yet, look at here. An angel of the Lord comes to Philip and says, I want you to go to the desert. (laughs) Come on, man. In modern Christianity, who is going to the desert? Not many people. And I want you to see that Philip didn't argue and say, Lord, everything's going so fantastic up here. You must be mistaken. Because you put me here and I'm doing a fantastic job. And the church is growing and the budget is amazing. And why in the world would you send me, me, to the desert? Look, you got none of that. Zero. Here's what, uh, here's what the angel of the Lord, or here's what Phillips does when the angel of the Lord speaks. He goes like this. Yes, sir. I'll go. No arguing. No debating. No justifying. No hesitation. He just went. Wouldn't that be amazing? if we would uh, uh, move in obedience in those ways. 
how we could impact southwestern PA, if you're in southwestern PA, how we could impact our little boroughs, and then out from that, and, our, and the city, if we just obey and go to the places where God would call us and not argue with him and just go. So he goes. He goes to the desert. He even says it in here. The Bible's funny, man. He said, this is desert. In verse 26, so he rose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charged of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, why do you think this story is against Simon the sorcerer? Because two people are going to quote, unquote, believe. And God is showing you the quality of faith that one has for salvation. Do you get it? And here, this guy, who's a eunuch, which means he couldn't be a full proselyte into the Jewish religion, doesn't deter him. He still grabs the scriptures and is what's called a God-fearer. He worships the God, but as sort of like an outsider, the God of Israel, but sort of like an outsider. But he comes to Jerusalem with Bible in hand. He comes up out of Ethiopia, Cush in the Bible, and he's a really respected, rich guy who has charge of her treasury and comes to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. He's coming back from Jerusalem. Now, look, just real quick, indulge me. If you're Philip and you go, oh, hey, Lord, you said desert. Now, I need to know what am I going to be doing in the desert? I mean, who am I going to be speaking to? Is there a new amphitheater down there I don't know about? Um, is there some sort of audiovisual or some sort of media ministry down there where lots of people are going to see me and the message that I have that I'm going to direct to you. Is that what we're going to do? Listen, God didn't give him any directions. I want you to see that. God said, go to the desert. And when you get there, I'll tell you. And so he goes. And when he gets there, you know, he might've just been, you know, kicking some rocks, praying. And all of a sudden, down the road comes this caravan with dust. And who knows who's in it? He doesn't know immediately. And the Holy Spirit, look at this. I want you to see this. The Holy Spirit had prepared him, Philip, sent him into the desert and had prepared the heart of this Ethiopian who came up out of Cush and went to Jerusalem. And now look, oh, don't look but is coming back down the road towards Gaza with this big caravan. The Holy Spirit has initiated, and somewhere in that road, boom, they come together. There's no accident. And one of the things that the person could have said was, Philip, you ever said this to yourself? Ah, oh, they're in a hurry. Hmm. I mean, there's horses and dust, and I'm out here kind of on my feet. How am I going to be able to stop them? And many of us, maybe me, would have done this and just watched them go right by. But he knew under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how do I know that? Because in verse 29, it says, then the Spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake the chariot. <laughs> and you say to yourself, well, how do you know? Well, here's what God just went, whoop, here's the open door. Go do it. So it took some effort. I mean, think about it. Chariots, horses, stand in front, play chicken. <laughs> it 
Stop. God told me. So Philip runs to him and hears him. God used it. Here's him reading the prophet Isaiah. Can you believe what Philip's heart must have done when he heard him reading Isaiah? I knew it. You never fail me, Lord. I knew it. I didn't know, but I knew it. I didn't know where I was going or what I was going to do, but here it is. And I want you to see it was one person, generally. Here it is. God's after one. He cares for the one. And here he goes and he says, hey, here's his evangelistic tool. I hear you reading Isaiah 53. Here's the evangelistic tool. Here's how to get in the spiritual discussion. Hey, do you understand what you're reading? Well, no, I mean, it'd be really helpful if... So he uses that and he said, how can I unless someone guides me? He asked Philip to come up and sit. They read this scripture about being led as a uh, sheep to the slaughter. And uh, 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 they go, go down in verse 34. So the eunuch answers Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this of? himself or some other man. Now this is amazing. And here's why it's amazing. Because the Jews uh, didn't necessarily believe that that scripture was talking about a person who was going to come in the future to save them of their sins. And so did you see how Philip directed him? He said, who's the person that he's talking about that's going to come later. He's directing him right to the Messiah. Then Philip opens his mouth, beginning at the Scriptures. What does he preach? Jesus to him. You don't have to preach aborigine rainforest to people, folks. God can handle that one. Who, what happens to the people in the rainforest? Okay, you can know the answers, but as soon as you give him an answer, get right back to Jesus and the cross. That's evangelism. Just tell people what Christ did at the cross. Preach the cross and tell him what that has meant for you in your life as a testimony. Just get back to Jesus. And as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, hey, here it is, water. What hinders me from being baptized? Can I get baptized? And Philip said, if, if you believe with all your heart, you may. You understand why Simon the sorcerer is in there right next to this Ethiopian eunuch, God's showing you what it takes. It's all of us. It's loving the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving our neighbors as ourselves. That's the command. What does that mean? Watch, and we'll close. Are we going to sing? Okay, we're not. <laughs> She's bailing me out. What does that mean when you believe with all your heart? It means everything that Philip was. It means everything that Paul was. A murderer, a hater, turns to being a protector and a lover. And so as we close out, uh, if you believe with all your heart, it says this, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch got you know, went down to the water and Philip baptized him. And now when they came up of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. Sort of mysteriously here, sort of like the boat on the Sea of Galilee when it was translated over to the other side so that the eunuch saw him no more. Watch, what does the gospel do when somebody surrenders their life? They, be, they rejoice. But Philip was found at Azotus and passing through, 
he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. And next week we'll talk to Caesarea. But what I'm saying is he went to the desert. <laughs> he shares with the one. The one goes on their way. Hopefully he did a follow-up, get plugged into a real great Bible-believing church down there. It's a joke. But anyway, and then he, what did he do? He just turned, he prayed again and said, Lord, send me where I should go. And off he went up the coast, preaching everywhere he went. What's one of the prayers we're going to pray tonight in corporate prayer? Well, it's going to be this. Lord, open up the hearts of people who we come in contact with this week and prepare us and fill us with the Holy Spirit so that we can minister to them in the way you've asked us to minister, not for our good and not for our glory, but for yours. Let's pray. <clears throat> well, Lord, we come this morning and we... Thank you for this word. It's a powerful word. How God can take a waiter's life or a mom's life or a dad's life, just a regular person's life, and have them speak before councils and important people in the eyes of the world, and also, Lord, to rich people and poor people and this kind of looking people and that kind of looking people. And Lord, you do it so naturally supernatural. And we thank you for it. And we're asking, Lord, that if there's anybody here that doesn't know you in a real and saving way, that you'd tug on their heart here this morning and they would come up after and we'd pray together. But if there are people here and there are who trust and have trusted in you, we pray you'd give them many opportunities this week to share your love and light and not wait. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.